morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, November 18th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 42, verses 1 to 20. Ezekiel's vision of the new temple continues as he sees other rooms, including the holy chambers where the priests eat the most holy offerings. Help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us returning guest, Pastor Hans Feeney. Pastor Feeney serves at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be here. Pastor Feeney, as we get started, I've been starting the last couple episodes in this section of Ezekiel with this quote from Dr. Hummel in his commentary. When he begins commenting on chapters 40 through 48, he writes this, From almost any perspective, these chapters are among the most formidable and challenging in the entire Bible. With that in mind, Pastor Feeney, how do we approach a section like Ezekiel 40 through 48? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought me on for the (laughs) most challenging part of the Bible. Uh, I'm, I'm humbled. Uh, and and in awe of your foolishness uh, for, for, for for bringing me on for that. Um, no, it, yeah, it is a very fascinating section. It, it's kind of one of these sections where uh, it, a little bit like the genealogies, where whenever you start seeing numbers or or uh, you know long list of numbers or long list of names in the Bibles, we sometimes have a tendency to go, okay, I'm going to kind of skip forward to the to the actual meat and potatoes, right? So that we we view it kind of the same way that we that you view watching the credits of a movie, where you go right, yeah, okay, those are the that's the information that technically needs to be there, but I, there's not much for me to actually gain from that. But there is, of course, in the, in the genealogies as well as in this section of Ezekiel, uh, a tremendous amount of theological depth. Uh, there's a lot of importance here. And so it can, it can be intimidating, you know, when you're coming across these numbers, uh, for example, because you're trying to, you're looking at them going, okay, is there some kind of symbolic nature to this number? Is there, you know, how well do I need to know the Bible? How well do I need, need to know the culture to understand uh, what's going on here? What's represented by all of these figures? So in a lot of ways it can be a, quite a bit like the book of Revelation, which is thematically uh, very similar to the book of Ezekiel in, in a lot of ways. So that, yeah, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot to be intimidated by, uh, but I, I would encourage folks uh, to to take comfort in the fact that um, you will you don't need to have every you don't need to solve every riddle uh, every time you read the scriptures that it's it's sort of like watching a, a kind of a dense movie uh, that has a lot of imagery and layers to it where you go okay I'll probably have the opportunity to to watch this more than once and kind of figure everything out. So you don't need to kind of try and digest it all at one time. So so it's kind of like cheesecake, right? You don't, when you buy a cheesecake, you don't just say, well, I, I got to go whole hog on this (laughs) the first time. Uh, You'll regret that. Uh, But it's, it's okay to kind of take it little bit by little bit uh, and kind of, and, and come back to it here and there uh, because you'll have time. And if you don't, if uh, the Lord returns or if you're taken to be with him in glory, 
then you'll understand it even better uh, in the kingdom. That's right. That's right. With the with the sometimes you know you want to fast forward through the credits. I, I've been recently rewatching some of the Marvel movies, and they they put those mid credits or end credit scenes. I think to to tempt you there, and it's it's not perhaps the same thing, but if you do skip over a section like this, there are those those spots that just will pop out suddenly. Like, wait a second, I can't skip over that. There is a ton of theological depth. I'm not sure if chapter 42, I think, has at least one spot where we're going to be able to dig in pretty, pretty deeply. But that's certainly true in the genealogies. And I think in this section of Ezekiel, where if, if you do just skip it entirely, you'll miss really key right. sections, even even if you do have to struggle through some of the more difficult parts. Uh, what are some of the, the handles? I mean, with a section like this, this new temple, what are some of the handles, knowledge from Scripture elsewhere? You mentioned the book of Revelation. That's going to help us as we dig into some of the details today. Well, I think kind of looking at, at generally the broader strokes of what's going on in, in this sections, right? So you've got from the prophet Ezekiel, who's who's prophesying at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And so you need to kind of remember that the central thing for the Jewish world is the temple. Uh, in, in Ezekiel's day, this will still be the case afterwards. Obviously, in Christ's day, this is a major major theme in the Gospels, is the true temple versus the earthly temple. And so what are God's people to do when their temple is destroyed, when you have the very epicenter of your faith removed, when you have the, the primary symbol of God's presence among you taken away from you and torn down and destroyed? How then are you to understand what your union is with God at, the, at that point, where, where, the, where the standing of the covenant is? And um, so, so while it can get easy to kind of, as I said before, get a little intimidated by the details of all of this, uh, the, the important thing to kind of take away from this is uh, this general theme of you have the God's wrath being poured out on account of, his, on account of man, uh, the Israelite sins, on account of their idolatry, their uh, their continual whoring after false gods, as the prophets uh, often describe it. And yet you have this promise from God that in the midst of his wrath being poured out, all is not lost because he's going to bring forth salvation. And so in this, th- that's what's happening in this whole greater section on this, this new temple, is God's promise that through this vision, that what the what those who are in the midst of despair might think is true is is not actually true. That God has not abandoned them, that He has not uh, thrown His covenant in the garbage, but that He has promised to be their Savior. He and He has promised to give them uh, true righteousness, true holiness, and true salvation in the true temple that will that's uh, sort of alluded to here, but that is. Uh, promised in all of its fullness, that's going to be realized in all of its fullness uh, in the blood of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Right. I mean, so this is not a blueprint for an actual building, right? I mean, this is something that Ezekiel is seeing for for a greater purpose. Can you talk a little bit about why we would understand that this is not a blueprint for a building, but it's pointing us forward, as you said, to what Jesus is going to do? Yeah, well... Um, as we kind of talked, as I mentioned before, in the book of, in the, in the Gospels, rather, you have a, a major theme in the Gospels is the true temple versus the earthly temple. 
And uh, so you have um, Jesus saying, you know, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days, talking about his own, uh, talking about his own body. So that the, the temple where all these sacrifices are offered is uh, these sacrifices are meant to point forward to the blood of the Messiah. So where you're, when you're offering up the la- you know, the lamb of, or the blood of spotless lambs, uh, the, you know, the firstborn of their flock. Here you're having God promise you that one day he's going to take his only begotten son who is without sin, without spot, without blemish, without moral failure. And he's going to shed his blood for you. He's going to have him crucified in order to take away his wrath towards your sins and give you eternal life. So that is, um, so that, that's the theme that's really laid out quite explicitly in the New Testament. Uh, it's what, for example, when you look at the cleansing of the temple, right? That I, I oftentimes grew up hearing and from Sunday school teachers and whatnot that when Jesus cleanses the temple, he's driving out the money changers, uh, and be, he's driving them out because they were charging too much. So that's sort of like you know they're charging too high of an interest rate when you you know when you go to if you go to Europe and you know if you go to England and you want to trade some dollars for euros, but when you look at things more broadly, what, what's really happening there is, is a bit simpler and, and more direct, which is that uh, the true Messiah has come. The blood that is going to take away the sin of the world has arrived, and these guys are still in the temple selling salvation. They're profiting off of salvation when, when the true Savior is there. So they're, they're making their business uh, in the temple, in the earthly temple, when the true temple is here. And so that that general theme that's established in the in the New Testament so clearly really kind of helps set the stage for understanding uh, what's happening here in this in this vision that Isaiah is having, so which begins in chapter four, or I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Ezekiel um, that Ezekiel is having, which begins in chapter forty here, where uh, where the Lord is giving him this vision, and uh, generally speaking, as a general rule, visions. Uh, and dreams in the scriptures are always um, primarily to be understood in a theological and spiritual context and in a a kind of physical or temporal context less so so that the whole the whole concept uh, of what's of what's happening here uh, is that this is a promise of the temple that cannot be taken away so, Pastor Feeney, with, with all of that in mind, and that was a very helpful explanation as to what's going on here, is there any other introductory material on Ezekiel or what he's seen so far that we need to know for chapter 42 before we dig in? Um, well, this is, again, kind of continuing along with um, this description of uh, of the temple. I mean, are, are you asking specifically about, like, the first two chapters leading up to this? Yeah, if, if there's anything there that of what he's seen already that's going to help us with what he's going to see today. Um, well, I think that... Obviously, what's what's helpful is kind of understanding the the massive size of everything that is sure. that is described. So in the in the previous chapters, when you know when you when you're having in chapter forty, uh, the description of the outer court, the north gate, the south gate, uh, the inner court is kind of going along. Um, that there's this very kind of specific um, description of things. It's a it's kind of from a literary perspective, um, it, it's quite fascinating because typically when you are thinking in terms of visions and dreams you're thinking broadly so that you know like when revelation is is on the one hand revelation describes you know this crowd that no one can number a multitude from all from all uh, tribes and nations right so that you have this 
this uh, beyond uh, explicability, <laughs> something that you can't even describe. Uh, and yet, um, and yet, at the same time, here in, in Ezekiel, you have this very kind of this this breadth and and hugeness described with very specific terms, where you've got the specific measurements of in terms of the cubits and the breadth and the height, uh, and uh, and the you know describing the the chambers of the inner court and and kind of all of all of these things. So. Um, so that's, I suppose, can be a bit helpful with setting the context for this, that we, we've come out of these first two chapters where um, you're getting very specific, large descriptions of, of everything, which is, I think, meant to very vividly depict for people uh, this, this salvation promise. That, that same vivid description is often, uh, I think, a little difficult, too, because he's describing with words something that you really have to see. And right. so it is, it can be, a, that's another one of the, the challenges of this section is is trying to picture these things in your mind. Sometimes there's not quite every single dimension that you need. The the height is often missing. It's, it's often described in just two-dimensional terms, so you can look at it uh, like on a map, but you can't necessarily see the whole thing in terms of exactly how tall it would have been. Right. That that's one of the the challenges. But it is, I mean, it is quite striking the the great detail that Ezekiel goes into that he's given here in terms of of the dimensions. Maybe let's let's read a little bit, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about some of these dimensions you mentioned with the the challenge of should we understand these things symbolically or how how should we understand these numbers? Let's go ahead and, and take a look at some of the numbers that Ezekiel gives us today, and then maybe come back to that question. So again, we're in Ezekiel chapter forty two, beginning at verse one. Then he led me out into the outer court toward the north, and he brought me to the chambers that were opposite the separate yard and opposite the building on the north. The length of the building whose door faced north was a hundred cubits and the breadth 50 cubits, facing the 20 cubits that belonged to the inner court and facing the pavement that belonged to the outer court was gallery against gallery in three stories. And before the chambers was a passage inward, 10 cubits wide and a hundred cubits long, and their doors were on the north. Now their upper chambers were narrower for the galleries took more away from them than from the lower and middle chambers of the building. For they were in three stories, and they had no pillars like the pillars of the courts. Thus the upper chambers were set back from the ground more than the lower and the middle ones. And there was a wall outside parallel to the chambers toward the outer court opposite the chambers fifty cubits long. For the chambers on the outer court were fifty cubits long, while those opposite the nave were a hundred cubits long. Below these chambers was an entrance on the east side, as one enters them from the outer court. All right, I'll, I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 9. Maybe before we talk about numbers specifically, can you just help us get this picture in our mind? When, when we're hearing things in cubits, uh, maybe it's just me, but I, I have a hard time visualizing things because I'm not, I'm not used to measuring things in cubits. What, what exactly is Ezekiel describing here? Um, yeah, so I, I had to look this up uh, a little bit ago because I Ezekiel this passage from Ezekiel is like uh, this is like the dream passage for architects because uh, <laughs> they because they'll understand this and the rest of us are going uh, what's a cubit how how, right. big, how big is that I don't know if this is meant to be large it's like it's like talking to you know someone from Europe you know and they go oh, I was driving down you know the autobahn and I was driving. 
160 kilometers an hour and you go <laughs> is that what is that is that fast or is that slow i don't know which reaction uh, you want you want from me so uh, a cubit according to the internet 17.49 inches uh, so about a foot and a half and uh, so 50 cubits uh, times a foot and a half uh, was that uh, so you get kind of the idea they're about 75 feet or so uh, sure. is, that, is that right I'm I'm bad at math this is why I became a pastor <laughs> uh, so um, I became a I pastor. think your math is right there yeah that's well that's pretty simple stuff my kids tell me that I need a calculator for five plus two but they're lying about me uh, so <laughs> Uh, so, so 75 feet. So this is a good, uh, this is a good size, obviously for a building, a uh, hundred cubits, you're going to be dealing with, you know, uh, closer to 150. Um, so, so that should hopefully give a kind of a frame of reference for, uh, the size of measurement we're dealing with. Sure. That, and that, that's helpful in terms of sizes, in terms of just the, the structure we're hearing about galleries chambers three stories tall uh, differing width in the various stories it sounds like because of again this is the architecture that i'm just not terribly familiar with i think because of the the construction can, can you help us get a, a picture for what ezekiel's seeing here um no no <laughs> not really it's, i'm glad it's i'm hard. not alone yeah it's hard uh, it's hard for me to in, envision this uh, as well um, so that chambers I know is, can also be under, or not cha um, gallery rather should, can also be understood as balcony. So that's probably a little bit more helpful okay. for people to understand, um, that, yeah. So gallery against gallery in three stories. So like a three story house, basically, uh, chambers are, are inner, inner quarters. So the inside of the building. So, uh, hopefully that's, a, that's a bit helpful, but yeah, this is, um, one of these passages that, again, it kind of you can see sort of why it is that oftentimes uh, the the magnitude of things is a bit easier to understand when when things are described more broadly because your your imagination can picture something uh, that that you're able to conjure up. So what what can, what's a little more challenging about this is that Ezekiel wants you to see it very specifically, uh, and seems to be presuming that you've built stuff before, which is which is probably a safe presupposition. Uh, for his immediate audience, but for 21st century Americans like me, uh, who have uh, barely ever cobbled together two pieces of wood, uh, that's um, it's a bit bit more of a challenge to kind of visualize things that way. Certainly, certainly, the, the audience Ezekiel has. I mean, that that does play a role into how he describes this. Uh, we are. I know that we're not talking about the temple itself. Ezekiel saw the temple itself in the previous chapter, and he's moving outward again. And he is going to hear the purpose of these rooms later in this chapter. We're gonna we're gonna hear more about what these rooms are used for. And so that that'll that'll be helpful in in terms of the numbers themselves, Pastor Feeney. You did mention toward the beginning of our conversation that that can be one of the challenges. Is not only the fact that there are so many, but are there other meanings to them, or should we understand any any sort of symbolism in the numbers? As you think about the numbers we've got here, and and generally speaking in this section of Ezekiel, what do you think? Well, um, I don't know. Again. Uh, so I, I asked that question hoping you would know the answer to it. Um, so I, uh, I guess the question is, if we compare this to uh, the building of the earthly temple, 
um, what, where, where's the comparison of those measurements? Do you know the answer to that question? I, I know I don't know as much about the comparison to the temple that Solomon built. Yeah. I, I did do a little bit of reading that the measurements that are given here, while while large, aren't anything compared to say what John sees in the book of Revelation. Mm. That that this I mean and because I I think there's a little more comparison. I mean, obviously the, the earthly temple that Solomon built that was destroyed is in the background. But, but there are some things here, and, and this comes up later, particularly in the way things are used and in some of the requirements for the priests and Levites, there's going to be some some pretty key differences between what was built and what was done and what Ezekiel sees. And then it's almost like it, get, it, it gets magnified in the book of Revelation. I, I guess the and the, the point that I've I've seen in that is that what Ezekiel's seeing here, is meant to be fulfilled. He's right. he's seeing things in an Old Testament frame of reference because that's where he's living. I mean, this is his world. He is a priest after all. Had he been in Jerusalem instead of in exile, he would have been a priest in the temple there in Jerusalem. And so he's he's seeing things according to his world. But even as he sees them, it's it's pointing beyond what he's seeing to something else. And as we've already said, that something else is really someone else who is is Christ. So in, in terms of the, you know, what the numbers are, on, on the one hand, they're certainly, you know, like round figures, I suppose. You know, it's not like 3.1415 to name a few digits of pi. You know, it's, it's, right. he's, not, he's not seeing that specific. So they're round figures. And, and they are numbers that in other places you might, you know, you, you might say, well, there's 100. That's a, a complete number, for example. And, and I'm not against that. Right. Uh, on the other hand, I'm also... I, I'm also sympathetic to just saying he saw that number because that's what it was, right. and and that's that. Well, so so here's First uh, Kings chapter six, uh, verse starting at verse one. In the four hundred four hundred eightieth year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits high, and 30 cubits wide, uh, which I believe is uh, a good portion smaller than what we're hearing described in yes. uh, Ezekiel here. And then it's kind of interesting that you're saying how in, then in Revelation you have an even, you have an even greater uh, breadth and width and height uh, of, of the temple. So um, that if you look at that kind of thematically throughout the scriptures, the promise seems to be that, so here you have the temple that's made with hands um, and that gets torn down, but here God is promising something uh, even greater to his people, which is the fulfillment of all of the promises given to them. But then you also have the gospel going out to the Gentiles and the, uh, and the growth of the church in, in that aspect so that the church, so that the temple of God uh, the presence of Christ uh, throughout the world ends up being even greater uh, than God's people could have could have possibly imagined. Yeah, yeah. What what about so let's let's talk a little bit about this with the with all these numbers here in Ezekiel particularly, knowing that this temple's never going to be built. Right. I mean, why why the exactness with the numbers? I suppose that that's on the one hand I, I can see it with the tabernacle and with the temple right. that Solomon built both. Cause those, those actually got built 
what's the what's the purpose of the is there more to the numbers here than just saying okay that's what he saw and that you need to know how long things are or is there something the fact that there are numbers at all what can, can you help out there a little bit yeah um I, I i think again that there's um there's probably some connection to the idea that he, he wants you to understand you know so the, these are people who have the scriptures they know the dimensions of the temple that were given to them, uh, to Solomon's temple. And so, uh, so the offering of, of specific numbers is, is a form of comforting people that what you're going to have is even greater than, than what you looked upon with your eyes and this, and this earthly temple that you're lamenting over. Um, that, would, that would be my, my best guess uh, as, to, as to why these very specific uh, numbers are, are given. Uh, and then in just kind of another thought is that uh, there's a tendency oftentimes in people to conflate um, pretend and spiritual. So to sort of indicate to people that when thing when we say that things are spiritual in nature, that they're not real. And uh, a I think perhaps the one of the reasons for giving these very specific numbers is is meant to indicate this temple is is even greater than the earthly one and it's just as as real as the earthly one was despite the fact that it's it's spiritual in nature and it's not it's not made of matter so even even though it it doesn't exist before your eyes in a way that you can measure it uh, it still has that. Um, it's it's just as as real as that, even even more real than that, because it's indestructible. I, I think that 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 point that just because it's a spiritual thing doesn't mean it's not real. That Ezekiel is seeing something that is real and has a, a reality behind it. I think that's that's a really important point. I want to talk a little bit more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 42 with Pastor Hans Feeney. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, November 18th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 42, verses 1 to 20 with Pastor Hans Feeney. He is the pastor at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, just before our break, you made the point that perhaps one of the reasons the numbers are given is to indicate the reality of this vision, that even though this temple that Ezekiel sees is never intended to be built in the same way that Solomon's temple was, that these numbers indicate that he has seen something real, 
that that has an, an actual reality for the people of God. And I, I I had thought about that as well. This we recently celebrated All Saints Sunday, and and in the the first reading that was given from Revelation seven, you have and you brought it up earlier. You have this interesting contrast when you read the whole chapter. In the first part of the chapter, John he he hears the numbering of the church, and so he hears that exact number: twelve right. tribes, twelve thousand each. And then he looks, and and when he looks, he sees a countless host of saints. Right. And I I, I think I mean. Uh, that's a, a the thought that had came come to my mind with that text as well. On, on the one hand, you know, see this countless number. Well, good grief! How do, is that real or not? The fact that God knows, right? They're numbered. He has His church there, and He He doesn't have anyone missing. And so, anytime I think again in these visions, particularly when you hear these numbers, even without talking about any symbolical reality that may or may not be there, just the fact that they're numbered indicates a, a realness. And it it indicates that God knows this is something right. that that He's got counted, and I, I think that that ties in with the, the uh, this point about reality as well. Yeah, the, um, yeah, and the Revelation text I think is helpful with with that as well because it's so that you know that hundred forty four thousand figure is is obviously not meant to be taken as a literal number of those who are going to inherit eternal life. You know, which is what the it's always been the weird thing to me about the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think they, from what I understand, they've changed this doctrine a bit so that there's like a higher level of salvation that only 144,000 people go to. But it's weird to me that they say only 144,000 people are saved and then they go around trying to convert a bunch of people. Like if I think (laughs) only 144,000 people are getting in, I'm not telling anybody about it because because they, they might, they might get hit by a bus before I do and steal my, and, and steal my spot. Uh, so, so that, but that number is obviously meant to indicate not, not only a sense of fullness, but as you, as you know, a, a deliberateness, uh, on the, on the part of God, that, that God is actually mindful of this, that God is aware of, of the number that God has selected, uh, this, this number of, of the elect. Uh, and on the one hand, that number is, is real. And on the other hand, it's beyond, uh, our scope of, of imagination. And so I think you see something uh, quite similar here where you have these measurements that are saying this is greater, this temple that I am seeing is greater than even the temple of Solomon. Um, but the, the point is not that this is a, a going to be a temple made out of atoms um, and uh, out of, you know, stone, this, um, this, you know, X amount of pounds of stone. Uh, but rather that there is a, a vastness to this, and yet there's also uh, God is is intimately connected with uh, the size of it. Yeah. I think that the deliberateness of the numbers as well really would have been a, a comforting thing to Ezekiel and the people he's preaching to there in exile, who again had, you know, they had left Jerusalem before the temple was destroyed, while they've been in exile, the news has reached them the temple has been destroyed, and and there maybe some of them are going to go home one day, knowing that that temple is not going to be around. the The deliberateness of this, I, I think, it would have been a comfort to that that audience in particular. That you know, the Lord, and they've they've heard why the Lord has destroyed the temple in the first place. They, he's, Ezekiel's been preaching why the Lord has brought the Babylonian army against Jerusalem and against the temple as judgment against them. And, and that was certainly a very deliberate thing. 
to know now that the Lord is going to provide for the restoration of that of the promise of the temple again not of the the in the building itself we've we've talked in this in this part of Ezekiel as well about how you know the the temple that does get built when they return from exile obviously doesn't measure up to this right and 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 clearly was not as good as Solomon's temple they there's people weeping when they see this new temple because they they remembered the old one and this new one just wasn't as good right. but to know to have this vision from Ezekiel that the Lord is is deliberate in what he's doing you know he's he's got a a purpose that sounds really cliche but he he does he has a purpose in mind he's actually doing something through all this right. he is is moving history toward its goal to fulfill the promise and again that's it's fulfilled finally not in a physical building but in his son Jesus yeah that um yeah exactly i think that's the the best way to to approach it uh i was also thinking too that even if the new temple had been better people still would have complained that it wasn't as good as the first one because because that's the way that people in the church deal with things. <laughs> so whether it's a new hymnal, whether it's a new sanctuary, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, whatever it might be, this is not as good as the old one. The old one was better. That's that's the way humans are hardwired to uh, to be thankless for the gifts of God. Well, let's, let's read a little bit farther here in Ezekiel 42. We're going to hear more dimensions, and then we're going to hear some about the use of some of these spaces. So we're picking up in verse 10 now. In the thickness of the wall of the court, on the south also, opposite the yard and opposite the building, there were chambers with a passage in front of them. They were similar to the chambers on the north, of the same length and breadth, with the same exits and arrangements and doors, as were the entrances of the chambers on the south. There was an entrance at the beginning of the passage, the passage before the corresponding wall on the east as one enters them. Then he said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers opposite the yard are the holy chambers, where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall put the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter the holy place, they shall not go out of it into the into the outer court without laying there the garments in which they minister, for these are holy. They shall put on other garments before they go near to that which is for the people. Now, when he had finished measuring the interior of the temple area, he led me out by the gate that faced east and measured the temple area all around. He measured the east side with the measuring reed, 500 cubits by the measuring reed all around. He measured the north side, 500 cubits by the measuring reed all around. He measured the south side, 500 cubits by the measuring reed. Then he turned to the west side and measured 500 cubits by the measuring reed. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall It had a wall around it, 500 cubits long and 500 cubits broad, to make a separation between the holy and the common. That's the rest of Ezekiel 42. That was verses 10 to 20. Now, Pastor Feeney, the, the part that stands out here is where well, a couple of things. It, it, where the guide, this heavenly tour guide that Ezekiel's got, begins to describe the use of of these holy chambers, and there, this is the place where the priests eat the most holy offerings. He lists some of what these holy offerings are. Can you tell us a little bit about these offerings and and the fact the fact that the priests are eating them? I think is something that sometimes we forget that the sacrifices in the Old Testament, not all of them were completely burned, but they they had a purpose of providing for the priests. Yeah, so the, that's how the priests would get their food in the same way that, that the, uh, so the priests come from the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe, obviously, that Moses and Aaron were from. 
And so the tribe of Levi is set up as the priestly caste, essentially, in amongst the Israelite people. So that's where their priests come from. And the tribe of Levi is not given an allotment of land like everybody else, but they're given cities in the various uh, in the various territories. So they uh, they do they live on the uh, on the mercy and the donations of other people, and including the sacrifices that are that are offered up. Um, so when you have this, uh, and then likewise, yeah, so Ezekiel describes uh, the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. So when you go back and you look into the, um, the first five books of the Bible in particular, uh, especially Leviticus, where you're dealing with uh, the division of responsibilities of the priests, um, and as well as the kind of categories of, of sacrifices. Uh, so that you have the grain offerings, so these offerings of the first fruits, um, and uh, then you have these sin and guilt offerings, which are typically dealing with uh, the blood of animals, so the blood of uh, blood of uh, goats and and lambs and bulls and things of that nature, um, where these are offered up. These are much more connected with the forgiveness of sins and the need for God's um, the need for God's mercy and forgiveness. So the the point here. I think for Ezekiel being that in this new temple, um, that these these priestly functions are going to still be carried out in the sense that uh, this temple is still going to be rooted in the forgiveness of sins, rooted in receiving the thanks of the people for God's uh, mercy and salvation. Hmm. And that's a really important point that, you know, this is going to be a temple that is being used. It's not going to just sit there empty right. as some nice shrine or, or a museum, but it's actually going to be used. I, I think it, I think that this is the first time that Ezekiel has actually seen something being used or had that description given. And so that's that's a pretty significant thought, particularly with the, the people's history and the way they've abused the temple. The Lord's actually going to not only just provide a, a temple, but it's going to be used, and it's going to be used for that purpose that he gave it, which is the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, that the temple is not going to be a, a tourist attraction. It's not going to be a kind of memorial structure for people to remember the way that things used to be. So you know, I was in, a few, number of years ago, I was in Paris, uh, and I was there on a Sunday morning. And uh, so I I was with a group of folks and we went into uh, Notre Dame Cathedral mm. and I didn't think that they would be having services at that time because they let people in because I never in a million years like if you know not that anyone in, in any of the churches I've ever I've ever served would have none of those would have ever been tourist spots but if someone had ever come in and said hey can I just walk around and look at stuff in your sanctuary while you're doing a service, I would say, oh, uh, no, you can you can sit down <laughs> and you can hear the word of God and you can look around the room then if you want to. But you can't like just get up and, you know, walk around the chancel, you know, and stuff. Uh, but that was what was happening there is that they just let tourists walk around. So I my wife and I got out kind of as quickly as we could because we just felt very icky about it, uh, that there's that there's something um, uh, there's something unholy about treating a, a space that's meant to be holy as a kind of um, tourist attraction. But you can see for a, for a lot of folks that didn't bother them because it was sort of, well, this is just a relic, right? I mean, so you go in and they've got, you know, Paris is obviously a big city, but they they had, I don't know, maybe 30 people actually go going to the service that morning and one of them, you know, probably the most famous cathedral in the entire world. 
and um, so it so it's a it's a shell of of what it used to be, uh, in terms of of its purpose, which is delivering to people the forgiveness of sin. So that's not what the new temple is going to be. It's not going to be just simply for some people to gaze upon and say, "Oh, this is where that building that temp- that Solomon used to gave you gave us used to be," but that this is a, a spiritual temple where the priestly function of receiving our our uh, our praise and pouring out the forgiveness of sins upon us, um, giving us forgiveness in the in the blood of the innocent one who was slain for us, uh, that's going to be fulfilled there. It's going to be a true temple in terms of its purpose as well. Right, and, and I mean, you know, the Notre Dame, and I don't know if this was before or after you visited, but Notre Dame. It it burned, or at least part of it burned in in recent memory, right? Yeah, that was yeah. I I was there a few years before it, uh, it caught on fire, and I was also I've also been in the World Trade Center uh, both of the times before it was bombed. Oh, wow. So I should stop visiting famous landmarks because uh, I'm I'm bad luck. So yeah, but yeah, so it, it caught on fire and for and uh, thankfully it was they, they were able to put it out, and there's you know plans to uh, continue restoring it because it looked. I, guys remember that from a couple of years ago it looked like the whole thing was just gonna burn down um, sure and well and, and my point my point in bringing that up was was because you thought of, I, I recall the reaction to to the you know notre dame burning and you you kind of wondered are people upset that it's burning because you've lost this historical landmark or or because right. the place where you went to worship the one true god and to hear his saving word that place was destroyed, and I'm, you know, I, I think the the reaction to that, that perhaps was was more of the former. That it was right. just, oh, this this beautiful building has been destroyed. Well, no, that that wasn't the point of the beautiful building in the per- first place. It wasn't so that it was beautiful for its own sake, but it, it was for the purpose of delivering God's gifts to His people. And I think you know, again, for the the people of of Ezekiel's day, that they would rightly mourn for the temple, not because this grand building that Solomon had built has is now brought to rubble, but that the place where God had provided for the forgiveness of sins to be distributed, that had been destroyed. And then the true comfort, again, is is not only in the fact that it's a wonderfully large building, perfectly laid out, but again, that this is a place that God is giving. He He's not going to stop delivering the forgiveness of sins. He's going to provide for that through this, this new temple. Yeah, so, I mean, I think an important thing to understand in this in the scriptures is, um, God doesn't take his gifts away from people who rejoice in them. He takes his gifts away from people who have despised them and discarded them. And that's certainly the case with the temple, is that the people keep going after false gods. They and they they keep abusing the temple. You know, I mean, so you you see this in the history of the kings. It's just it's so bizarre for us nowadays to read it and uh and you go, Oh, this this new guy arose and he was a good king and he went in and he removed the booths of prostitutes from the temple. And you go, you go, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, I have a lot of problems in my, you know, everyone's got a lot of problems in their churches. Uh, and you deal with unbelief and whatnot. But I, you know, so sometimes you may get, you know, like the worst a pastor nowadays gets is someone who's like, hey, can we have a, you know, can my daughter sell Girl Scout cookies at church? Uh, but no one, <laughs> no one comes up to you and says, hey, uh, I had this great have this great idea uh, that it involves a bunch of prostitutes. Can we use the church for it? Right, everyone at least knows that. So, uh, so you can see the depth to which people have rejected and turned away from God, 
and I, I think your point was about Notre Dame was great, right? Is, is that the question is, what are you actually lamenting? And if, um, if God threatens to take away through this fire, the, uh, this symbol, well, what is the thing supposed to symbolize? Is it just simply a, a landmark of, of French pride? Or should you lament the fact that there were only 30 people going to the services, you know, in a city of however many million people in Paris, uh, of, of people who have, who have turned away from, from the gospel? Uh, and and that's uh, re- really the, the question there is, so God takes things away from you in order for you to be able to see, he takes his gifts away in order for you to recognize that you need his gifts and that you may cry out for them. And that's very much what's essentially happening here is that in Ezekiel promising people that there's going to be something even greater than this temple, and it's going to be, uh, and, the, and the purpose of this temple the work of this temple is going to be delivering to you the gifts that you didn't want, the gifts that you despise, the gifts that you perverted. That's what this temple is going to be about. That's still part of this call to repentance, that you may see that when God is promising you something new, it's it's really not new because in, in its substance and what it's meant to deliver to you, it's the very thing that um, that the temple was set up to be, that Solomon's temple was set up to be. The other part of your your account of going to, to Notre Dame, I think fits very well with what we've got in Ezekiel 42, is the matter of when you visited, there was actually a worship service going on, and the, the failure to distinguish between the holy and the common, which that is a, a big concern for the Lord in this new temple. It, it gets mentioned in two different ways here. In verse 14, as it's describing how the, the priests are to go into the holy place, but then they're not to go into the outer court without taking off their special garments that they serve in, because those are holy, and they're not to go near the people. And then again, at the very end of the chapter, the Lord desires that there be a separation between the holy and the common. What you experienced there at Notre Dame would not have been experienced in this new temple. Talk more about this, this distinction between the holy and the common and the Lord's emphasis on making sure that that is maintained. Yeah, so, well, the interesting thing about uh, touring Notre Dame was that they um, they had roped off kind of a sanctuary area within the sanctuary. So it was like they had, it was like they sort of said, all right, well, we're going to sacrifice a lot of the Holy of Holies to tourists but we'll still keep this little bit here where you couldn't go into the roped off area unless you were actually going to sit down uh, for the service. And uh, whereas I, I have, uh, my mother-in-law was telling me when she went to Italy, Italy, they'll let you tour around the cathedrals all week, but on Sundays, absolutely no tourists whatsoever. They, that's limited for, for worshiping only, which I think is a, a proper way to do things. So, um, and yeah, and, and you see kind of in that an indication that um, this, this house is has a specific purpose. It doesn't exist just simply to be beautiful, and it doesn't exist to be a symbol. It exists to give you the love of God, and because the love of God is pure, it shouldn't be mixed with things that are impure. So uh, when it when it comes to the priests, they are to they are to put on the proper garments for doing the holy work. Uh, they are you know this this is why um, I've oftentimes had non-Lutherans ask me, you know, why, you know, why do you Lutherans wear robes? Because um, they're not, you know, they're used to their pastors just wearing jeans and, you know, designer sneakers, which has become a thing in the evangelical community. I'm really glad I'm not an evangelical pastor because uh, I'm 40 and I don't want to have to buy sneakers. But, <laughs> but uh, 
uh, you know, they go, well, you know, why, why do you wear robes like that? And my response is, well, the pastor's doing something different than the rest of the people are doing. So the past, it's, it's good and fitting for the pastor to dress differently than everybody else. Now, now, obviously, we don't have the same obligation to wear priestly garments that those in the Old Testament did because they're working under, a, uh, under the Old Covenant and under a different set of rules. But it's a good thing that when you walk into a church and you say, well, there's one guy here, presuming your congregation has one pastor, now, there's one guy here in the room that God has authorized to give me the forgiveness of sins. And it's not just that he can give me the forgiveness of sins. It's that it's his job to do so. That if he walks up into the pulpit and if he wa- tries to walk out of the pulpit without telling me that my sins are forgiven, he's failed at his job and God is going to be angry at him. So uh, his, his job is to stand by that font and pour out the waters of salvation that, that bestow upon those who are baptized the forgiveness of sins. His job is to stand at the altar to proclaim the words of salvation and forgiveness, to go up into the pulpit to, to proclaim the words of forgiveness that drench me in the blood of Jesus. His job is to take the bread and the wine and give me the body and blood of Jesus through them for the forgiveness of my sins. And because he's doing a holy thing that doesn't happen anywhere else, then it would be good for him to dress like uh, you don't see people dressed in other circumstances because what's happening here is unique. This is, I, th- I think this is why it, it, churches should be in a, in, a, in a sensual sense. I don't mean sexual as it's oftentimes used as a euphemism for that, but in appealing to the senses, it's good for the church to be unique and distinct from everything else. The church should sound like nothing else. It should smell like nothing else. It should taste like nothing else. It should look like nothing else because it's the only place in the world where the gifts of salvation are poured out upon us. And if that's the case, if, it, it's, if that's the case that the church is where the holy work is, of God is being done, then we shouldn't intermingle uh, unholy things with, with that holy work. In addition to, to all that you just said, which I think is very helpful, and even, you know, when it comes to like what what's the pastor doing with delivering the forgiveness of sins, maybe making it a, a little bit broader and, and thinking about the term holiness, that you know I, I do go to church to receive the forgiveness of sins. That forgiveness of sins comes from God, at, and I so I encounter Him there. But what like I I suppose maybe because we're Christians, we kind of take it for granted that God's going to forgive us. But the reality is He's holy and I'm not, right. and so. To just approach God in all of his holiness, I really can't. I, I better not take it for granted that he's just going to forgive me. Uh, except, I mean, and I know we're Christians, right? So we've got Christ and we, we do know his promise. But apart from Christ, the holiness of God would consume me. And I think that's that's part of what's going on here in Ezekiel as well. Yeah. Um, so that that this is something that I think is is becoming lost. I think there was there used to be kind of a greater de- sense of decorum and manners in, in church. Um, this is still kind of the case with funerals, right? So when, when people who don't go to church go to a church funeral, they know that they're supposed to kind of dress nicely and behave. Uh, weddings, however, are, are, are a totally different story. And I don't know, I'm not exactly sure why that is, but I've, I've done a, you know, a number of weddings and I've had there was one occasion I remember having a couple of guys I nearly threw out of the church. From just from the way that they were behaving prior to the wedding, weren't in the wedding party at all or anything like that, but just had no sense of how to conduct themselves uh, 
in the presence of things that were holy. And yeah, so we, we should recognize that, of course, everyone is welcome in the church in the sense that um, God desires that all come to salvation. God desires that all hear his word uh, and are, are washed in the waters of salvation. But uh, we should also recognize that our God is a consuming fire and that he has, he has bid you come near and he's given you the right to draw near through the blood of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you should cast that doesn't mean you should be comfortable casting off the robe of Christ's righteousness and uh, and seeking to draw near to God covered in your sins it would it, it, that will not go well for you right the, the separation of the holy and the common is a reminder that we only come to God on his terms never on ours like, I mean this is obviously his temple he's the one that's showing it to Ezekiel he's the one that's giving all the measurements. And, and here, this distinction between the holy and the common is the reminder that, yes, he wants you to come into his presence, but you can only do so on his terms when he gives you his holiness in right. a beneficial way, rather than you just waltzing right into his holiness and being consumed by it because you're a sinner. And, and a, such an important distinction, not just in this section of, or this chapter for Ezekiel, but really through this whole, as we think about the temple as a whole, what we're seeing here in Ezekiel, an important thing to remember. Pastor Feeney, we've got about a minute left on the morning. As you reflect on the, the difficulties of this chapter and also the, the clarities of this chapter, help us to, to remember what we've seen here and, and how it points us to our Savior Christ. Yeah, so I think in, in the end, uh, with all of this specificity, it really ties in with the fact that salvation in Christianity is incredibly specific. That salvation is not just, oh, there's a God out there somewhere who loves you in some generic way, but the specific promise of salvation is there was, there is one unique individual human being with his own unique genetic code named Jesus, who was born in this specific town of Bethlehem to this specific family in fulfillment of these specific promises, who lived at this specific time under these specific, you know, earthly rulers, and who went to this location at this specific time and with the blood from his veins poured out salvation for the world in order to build for them the church where they will live with him in his kingdom forever, where all who believe in him will live with him in his kingdom forever. So um, so any criticism that, that anyone might level at Christianity, you can certainly nev never criticize Christianity for not being specific. It is a very specific salvation, uh, a very unique and identifiable savior. And that's something that I think we see reflected pretty clearly in this passage from Ezekiel. Pastor Ansfini is pastor at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri, helping us today with Ezekiel 42, verses 1 to 20. Pastor Feeney, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.